This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse, and Regular listeners of the podcast know that one of the things that I love to talk about is parking and our, our constant debates about it here in Door County. And today, I cannot think of anyone better to have a conversation about parking with than our guest, Donald Shoup. He is the Distinguished Research Professor in the Department of Urban Planning at UCLA, but more importantly, the author of a book called The High Cost of Free Parking, which uh, is a fascinating look at parking and a totally different way of looking at it than most people generally look at parking. And Donald, thank you so much for joining the podcast and taking some time to, to talk about this with me. Well, thanks for inviting me. You wrote this book. It's not something that a lot of people look at for generations for, I would guess, you know, 75 years or so of development in this country. We think of parking as a necessity. You have to have this. This is a, a, a cornerstone of any development, any building, any urban planning. You took a look at this in a much different way. Can you, just that, that phrase, the high cost of free parking, can you explain to our listeners who, you know, a lot of them think in that old, that mindset that parking is just necessary. Where does that come from? What does that mean, the high cost of free parking? Well, everybody who has a car definitely needs parking. But the question of how much, and at what price, I think one of the, the, the problems we've had right from the beginning was that we thought that parking ought to be free. And planners have played along with this. I mean, suppose it's, it's, it's the dawn of the automobile age of around 1900. John D. Rockefeller and Henry Ford had asked you, think of planning policies that would increase the demand for cars and oil. And suppose you consider three options. One is to have uh, separate zones for every activity, you know, housing here and jobs there and shopping someplace else. So you would want to drive between the, the zones. And second, you limit density. So you would have to spread things farther apart that you can't have more than a two-story building, for example, or, or can have more than a one single-family house, so the city spreads out and you you need cars more. And then third, the third policy is to require ample off-street parking everywhere. <laughs> well, now, and then cars will become the default way to travel. Uh, there'll be plenty of parking, and nobody will know who's paying for it. <laughs> It'll be free, but the cost doesn't go away just as the driver doesn't pay. And and I think that American cities, I suppose in, in your county, that they follow these three policies for more than 100 years. And now we're realizing that hiding the cost of parking uh, in higher prices for everything else uh, was mm. a very bad idea. And it's an idea that you can easily reverse. What are some of those ways that we hide the cost in, in other policies? You, you, you talk about this like, all right, the parking might be free, but what is it, what's the impact then of that free parking on, say, like housing? It's free to the driver in the role of driver. But if you're renting an apartment, for example, and the parking requirement for all apartment buildings, you have to have two parking spaces for every apartment, you'll get two parking spaces thrown in with the rent. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
where who pays for that parking? Um, certainly in bigger cities, uh, it's underground parking. It could be fifty or a hundred thousand dollars per space. Hmm. Uh, even in, in smaller areas, that is, even if it's surface parking, you have to pay for the land and dedicate the land to cars, not people. If, if, you, if you're forcing housing builders to, uh, to use a lot of their land for, for cars, there's less land for people, and that drives up the price of housing. One study done in, uh, here in California found that on average, the required parking increases the, the rent of apartments by about 17%. And wow. that's even if you're too poor to own a car, you have to pay for parking. And when you, if you, if you don't have a car, if you can't afford a car, whenever you go to the grocery store, either walking or on bike or on bus, you pay higher prices for, for groceries so richer people can park free at the grocery store. Hmm. Just because the parking is free at the grocery store does not mean that the cost goes away. The cost is still there, and we're all paying for it. Uh, and I think that a city, including yours, where everyone happily pays for everybody else's free parking, is a fool's paradise. Hmm. For that reason, that like even if you like in my case, if I try to bike a lot, I'm still paying for the parking costs. I'm still paying for that parking lot, like you said. Yes, and. And the people who are using the parking lot pay nothing. <laughs> um, and just so you know, you mentioned that uh, if you require two parking spaces per unit in at least one community here in the village of Sister Bay, they actually require four parking spaces per residential unit. The idea being, you know, if you have a family and you have a single family home that at some point you have kids that they all park. So we basically make our planning and our parking requirement based on that peak couple of years when those kids are 16 to 20 years old and that they might be at home and they all and all four family members have a car. So those other 16 years, we still require them to have those two extra parking spaces for that one day when those kids may or may not have a vehicle. Well, I don't think you should require any parking spaces uh, because developers are the ones who, <laughs> who know how much the spaces cost and what their customers demand. I, one developer said that if somebody doesn't want to... Uh, rent an apartment in my building because they're not a, a parking. It's that's my problem. Hmm. Developers know that, and when cities do remove parking requirements, developers don't stop providing parking. Sometimes they provide more than was previously required. But I think the decision on how much parking should be should be shifted down to the users and, and the home builders rather than by city planners who have no training in how to set a parking requirement, having the vaguest idea how much the parking spaces cost. They just short-circuited the market for parking and uh, greatly increased the demand. I think that it, it, if there's a family with <laughs> what is the peak that the, the children all want their own cars, then I think that some of them will say, well, maybe we should share a car instead mm -hmm. of having four cars. We have two. Or, or now the, the, the world has changed. We have Uber and, and uh, shared parking. and Scooters, e-bikes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a lot, a lot of alternatives that, that weren't there 50 years ago. And a lot of cities are picking up on what I'm saying. Well, Nashville, you wouldn't think that Nashville <laughs> is this, is this uh, uh, a, a city 
uh, would jump at the very first technological ideas, but Nashville converted its, its minimum parking requirements into maximum parking limits. So that's hmm. making a complete U-turn, and other cities wow. have done the same thing. And what other profession is saying, oh, well, we used to give aspirin for, uh, to prevent uh, blood clotting, and now we prohibit a- aspirin. See, I think that if, 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 if planning were you know, really scientific profession, that wouldn't happen all the time. It wouldn't happen that in one city they have maximum parking limits and the next city they have minimum parking requirements and nobody blinks an eye. So what you're, what you're talking about when you say, and you've, you're a big proponent of getting rid of parking minimums. Yeah. In our communities, if I went to a meeting and suggest that people's, people's heads explode, right? And once you study urban planning, you study the cost of parking a lot, it starts to make sense. But at, at first glance, people would balk at this idea. So what do you think has effectively changed some of those minds? What is the thing that makes people finally accept the idea that maybe we don't have to have that minimum? Because a lot of towns, they use it as a way to control development in some ways. Well, that's right. The way they then we, we don't want to have any fast food restaurants in our neighborhood, so let's have a high parking requirement for a fast food restaurant. And, and in the U.S., uh, for a fast food restaurant, you have to have more than three times as much space for, for, for cars as for, as for the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, so it, 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 trying to prevent something like fast food restaurants near you, you, you make the... the, the the rest, the restaurants even more objectionable to have the covered with asphalt and heat mm-hmm. island effects and water runoff and 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 free parking. So I I would say that I, I would ask one people when you when you're when they're objecting to it, ask them how much a parking space costs and then and then who pays for it. Uh, that I think that, that even the planners have no idea <laughs> what the answer to that. No, I think that they, 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 getting back to your question, how to make this idea popular, I think the main thing is that if you're going to get rid of off-street parking requirements, especially downtown, which were built before the parking requirements uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and don't have a, a ton of off-street parking, I think that the best thing to do is have, to charge for curb parking and uh, charge the right price, which is the lowest price you can charge, and still have one or two open spaces on every block. So the parking is well used. Most of the spaces are occupied, but they're readily available. There are one or two open spaces all the time. So that means the prices will have to be different from winter to summer and from morning to lunchtime, but it's very easy to vary uh, curb parking prices. And then to make that popular, politically popular, getting back to your question of what, how to stop people's heads from exploding, <laughs> you can commit all the revenue from the meters to pay for added public services on the metered blocks, uh, to prepare the sidewalks, to shovel the snow in winter, to plant street trees, uh, to give free Wi-Fi to everybody on the block, or to give free transit passes for everybody who lives on the block. Uh, and then people then begin to see that these market prices make political sense because they get the revenue. I mean, the stakeholders are the people who live there or work there or have property there. And if they see this is a new way to get tourists to pay for facade improvements or something like that, 
some hanging baskets of flowers, whatever they want. I think the mm-hmm. best thing to do is to ask people, what would you like to have for your community, you know, for your block or for your business district? And ask them what they want. Don't even mention parking. Just say, what do they want? And then when they say, this is my highest priority, say, well, we don't have the money for that, but here's how other cities pay for it, is they put in parking meters and spend the <laughs> revenue for these services. So I think that's a good thing. I think, I don't know exactly, well, I've never been to your town, but there is an idea that uh, I think it works really well here, and I think it would work there uh, or anywhere, is that uh, if you have required off-street parking, often you get these uh, two-car garages uh, in front of the house, uh, you know, sticking out the front. It's called snout houses, like like a pig poking its snout out onto the, <laughs> towards the curb. And, and so the, the, the drivers have to be as wide as two cars. And then you have an apron that flares out on either side to turn into the driveway. So it's about 25 feet for the driveway uh, at, at the curb. And it's illegal to park in, the, in front of a driveway because you might be blocking somebody uh, who lives there or their emergency vehicles can't uh, get past it or something. So we've taken for granted that every house that has a driveway gets a share of the street for the entering across the sidewalk. And so what California now allows is that cities cities can issue permits for homeowners or renters to block their own driveway. Mm. So they guarantee the curb space right in front of their driveway and for plumbers or electricians or college kids who are home for a weekend or something like that, that they they have something they didn't have before. They have a guaranteed curb space. And this doesn't take away anything from anybody else. Right. So there are people can understand they have political support for these uh, driveway uh, parking permits uh, because somebody benefits and nobody suffers. Right. And you, the cities can charge the, the uh, homeowners for this for giving these permits, the city would issue the, the permits, and uh, they can give a lower permit price for lower-income people. So I think that the, the driveway parking permits, you tell me, how does this sound? Would this appeal to anybody in your county? Yeah, I think, I mean, just like anywhere else, even though we are not a big city, but uh, we are small towns that become medium-sized cities in the summer when we get the tourism crush. And there's this odd balance for local governments of being a small town government with medium sized city problem. And when I say medium, I'm talking like a, we essentially become like 10 to 15,000 person cities, but we have a lot of these congestion complaints and you've written about this too, is how even parking creates congestion, right? You provide ample parking. That means that everyone's going to drive somewhere versus figure out a different way to get there. Even if they live one block or two blocks away, they choose to drive because there's a lot of parking and it's all free. But as soon as you charge for it, you can actually charging for parking and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but like charging for parking is a way to reduce congestion by forcing at least people within say like one mile to consider a different way of getting to a destination, correct? Yeah, so how long they stay and what time they get there, because the prices will be lower in the morning and higher in the afternoon, especially for an area like yours. A lot of that parking is only needed at the peak time of the year. Yes. And that's when you should put in the in, uh, charge for parking because most of the pay- payments will be made by tourists. Right. And they'll be happy 
to say that, gee, there's no parking problem in, in, in Door County. That it's always easy to see a curb parking space. And if they come from Chicago, they'll think how low the prices are. <laughs> or if they yes. come from Minneapolis or, or wherever, they think this is cheap. And it's so convenient. And then finally, it's, it's sort of like Monty Python's idea for solving Britain's economic problems. And that is to tax foreigners living abroad. And if most of the, the parking problems comes from tourists and you have the solution, it's the tourists who are paying for it. That is putting out a cash register. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if they hang flower baskets or they fix the sidewalks or whatever it is that draws uh, tourists, then that, that, will, that will increase the number of people. Uh, but the... The uh, cars, who uh, the tourists, that they can park farther away where the, mm-hmm. the prices are cheap. They can block three blocks away, oh, where the prices are cheaper. Or I think that it, it's almost like urban alchemy. Is you you, you convert a, what seems like an insoluble problem into better public services. So I think it, I, I wouldn't talk to people about how much it raises the price of housing and things like that. You have to have a reliable political support mm-hmm. for any political change. And I would say that the, these two things I would uh, end up recommending for, for, for you is the driveway parking permits. And at the peak hours of the summer, that that might be worthwhile. If you have an Airbnb, you know, the visitor visitors can park on the street in front of the driveway. And it increases the number of curb, conventional curb spaces uh, available to everybody else because if the homeowner can park in front of their own driveway, that means they won't want to park in the other mm-hmm. uh, conventional spots. So those conventional spots that are just like regular curb parking, that they, they will be more available. <laughs> and if they're metered, it's even better. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. So you essentially would be creating, like even in a small town, that would create hundreds of spaces without a single dollar of investment. That's right, exactly. And, and it would reduce the demands for all-street for all parking requirements. It would make the idea of requiring four parking spaces per apartment be, be, look as ridiculous as it is. <laughs> you know, in preparing for this podcast, I looked at the, the village nearest me, and that is Sister Bay, Wisconsin. It also is the, it's the busiest tourism village in our, in our county. And... I looked at the parking requirements in their zoning code and their, their main core area, which is extremely popular. And I looked at one block and for our listeners, this is the block basically from on deck clothing store to the bottom of the hill mill road, where there's a place called Husby's sister Bay bowl, big supper clubs, big restaurants. I looked at how many additional parking spaces would be needed in that corridor by our zoning code than exists because most of these places were built before we had zoning before they had parking requirements. 
So it's a very dense area. If you actually followed, if all those places were open today and had to follow the code, they'd have to have 391 additional parking spaces, which essentially would make the busiest block in that part of the community one massive parking lot because you'd have no room for the businesses if you actually built the parking. And one of my arguments to when this comes up with people and people in the policymaking position, like if you have a very bustling area that's working really well, that doesn't comply with your zoning code and seems pretty happy, then your zoning code, your parking ordinances are bad. That's bad code. If your code would make you have to bulldoze your most popular area, that's pretty bad code. And that that's just one block in one community. That's pretty much universal for our entire county across the board. Well, it's, it, it's just your county. It's, it's around the United States and Canada and large <laughs> parts of the world that, that have copied us. Now, I think you probably think your, your city is unique in, in many ways it must be, but they're all the same when it comes to parking. Uh, parking in your city, in, in your town, is no different from parking in um, a suburb of Los Angeles. It's, it's the density is the same. <laughs> the, the parking problems are the same. But I, I think that, uh, as you point out, if you had to, if everything that's that's there now that people like could not be there if it had to provide the required parking, you, you just wouldn't have those buildings. And I, I let, let me finish by suggesting you should call somebody else. Uh, uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, is, uh, became famous. And uh, I think you should uh, ask uh, people in your planning department to, to, to follow this story. The, the planner uh, got a job there, and he quickly realized that he was at the planning desk where everybody had to come for permits for any new business. Not a new building, but a new business in an existing building. And it turned out that over the years, there were so many businesses turned down because the buildings didn't have the right amount of parking. And they were empty, and some of them were torn down. Hmm. And he pointed out this to the, to the city council, and they, they removed the off-street parking requirements uh, in downtown. And uh, what happens everywhere, a lot of restaurants opened up. Because restaurants have very high parking requirements, mm-hmm. and you have historic houses that would be great restaurants. You simply cannot use them if it doesn't have the required parking. And as soon as they got rid of the required parking, well, the parking requirements, then businesses uh, opened up rooftop restaurants and old buildings. They, they 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 capitalized on their old buildings. So I think that the any small town could do what Fayetteville did. It's, 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 it's certainly celebrated as to how successful it is. And I think that spending the, the meter revenue to pay for added public services is the other big success that you could have. Say with Pasadena, California, uh, in its old town, which was a commercial skid row, uh, that people thought would never come back. Well, they uh, agreed to, to put in parking meters if the money came back to the neighborhood. And within the next five years, the sales tax revenue, which is a measure of business, tripled in old Pasadena. Hmm. So you cannot say <laughs> that putting parking meters in and spending the revenue to pay for added public services on the meter streets is going to hurt business. It helps business. So I think that that, you know, Pasadena is about 100,000 people. 
around here, that would be considered a small town, I suppose, but uh, other cities are doing it. Um, and I think that the political purposes, the way you generate uh, support is by promising to, to dedicate all the revenue to what the business improvement district, for example, says is our most important priority. And, in Pasadena, they clean the sidewalks and uh, streets every night. They remove graffiti any night, and there isn't any more. No more graffiti now. And they pressure wash the sidewalks twice a month when they have extra police protection. And everybody goes into, you know, 30,000 people on a typical weekend will just walk around in old Pasadena. And when previously, it was mainly empty storefronts. Hmm. Uh, and that was putting in parking requirements and getting rid of parking requirements and putting in parking meters. Because I don't know about your county, but in Pasadena, they had wonderful buildings in terrible condition. You know, mm. there were buildings they wanted to save, but there was no use for them because of the parking requirement and because it was so hard to find parking at the curb. But now in old Pasadena, it's easy to find parking at the curb. And the public uh, sphere is just terrific. They cleaned up all the alleys, so people like walking around the alleys. They have restaurants in the alleys. Uh, they uh, have historic street lights and street furniture. I, I think, yes, uh, I'll get back to the idea of charging the right price for curb parking and spending the revenue on the, to add public services on the metered blocks. Uh, and removing all street parking programs will be like urban alchemy. You have a, a something that that everybody doesn't like, and they don't like any other reforms. That if you put all three of these, in, it, it will make it a, a better city. Sort of like a combination lock, you know, when you turn your the dial back and forth, <laughs> nothing seems to happen. But when you get the the three numbers right, then the lock opens. And I think that could happen in a country like yours if you adopted these these uh, three ideas. And I've got a lot of other ideas. I'll, I'll, I'll email you a paper that I've been working on. And I think that, uh, yes, I think, well, I'll just finish off this and then say, say goodbye. You'll have to have parking enforcement if you start charging for curb parking and removing all street parking rules. You have to enforce the curb. So what some cities do is have progressive parking fines for the first ticket you get at, uh, for, for, for a driver's license, for a car's license, I mean for a license plate. The first ticket is a warning and say that uh, you overstayed your time or you didn't pay. And then the, the second time you do this, the, the, uh, the fine will be $25. And if you get two more tickets, then the second one will be $50. And it keeps on going up. If you're a prolific <laughs> violator, you know, you'll end up paying a lot. And people who occasionally may, you know, they mistakenly didn't pay, they won't pay anything. And a visitor uh, who gets a, a, a first ticket won't pay anything. So they won't think it's a bad city to be in. Yeah. And, oh, I got this ticket in the door county. I'll never go there again. But if they see that, that, yes, you're supposed to pay at a parking meter, uh, and for some reason you didn't, well, this, we'll excuse that. But if you do it again, you'll have to pay. So I think that's something that other cities are doing, and I should think it would work well, especially in a tourist area where you don't want to offend uh, tourists with a ticket that they, they want to have a good time. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's an important point in our particular community of like, hey, we don't want to like 
be bludgeoning people who come here who spend their money, but you also want to let them know. So you give them a chance, right? You give them a little slap on their wrist. I wanted to ask you the two other questions. One, what about those people who already developed their lot and maybe because, let's say you got rid of parking minimums. Well, now this guy who built a place three years ago built this massive parking lot because of your minimums. And now the next guy who's competing with him doesn't have to do that. And now that guy kind of mooches off this other guy's parking. Do you have any sort of, I've, I've referred to this sometimes as like a parking reparations program or any ideas for those people who have already foot the bill for this to kind of like a make good? Have you seen any examples of that that have worked? Yes, I think some very good ones that would work for, for you as it worked for other cities is that they, they hire a parking operator. So the guy who has a, a big parking lot and wants to keep non-customers out, they, they uh, engage a parking operator to convert it into a paid parking lot, you know, like a public parking lot, a city-owned parking lot. And anybody can, uh, can park at it if they pay, and their customers get validation. So they still have free parking for their customers, but the spaces are not left empty. Mm. <laughs> say at night, if it's a bank, you know, in the evening, all of the spaces will be paid for. So suddenly, uh, your, your town will have a big supply of public parking. Hmm. Uh, and so visitors, can, if, they, if they don't want to park at the curb, it may, it may be cheaper to park uh, off street or they want to stay for a long time. And so I think then uh, that, that would help. That would be a, a big revenue boost for the what you think somebody needs reparations. They don't need reparations. They now have land that's much more valuable. They could put in a, a restaurant on their parking lot if they want to. They can do whatever they want with their parking lot because it's not required by city planners. Mm. And I, they want to rent it out to other people. They, they have the right to do that. And I don't know about your town, but uh, Sacramento has a very good problem that they do have public parking lots. Do you have public parking lots in your town that people pay to park in? We don't have any paid parking other than there's one small private paid parking lot in the, a village called Ephraim. But as far as the oh. nor- northern part of the county, there's not a single paid lot, including prime spaces basically right on the waterfront. Well, you've got a great future ahead of you if you reform your ridiculous parking requirements. <laughs> because I think that uh, what well, some cities do, like Sacramento, they do have public parking lots. So they're used to, to dealing with customers. And so they will manage a, a private parking lot uh, and split the revenue with the property owner. Hmm. So then he gets more paid park, public parking and gets revenue. It uh, gets tickets for people who violate the law. The city gets more parking available to the public and the property owner gets a lot of money. So I think land isn't free, even in, <laughs> even in, in smaller cities. Land is very expensive. And it's free only if you bring a car. <laughs> That's a great point. So, so no wonder we're in tough shape. Hey, I've enjoyed talking to you and I will send you more stuff. Is there anything finally you want to ask? Well, I just want to, one question is, what led you down this path? What made you think about parking differently? Well, um, I wrote my PhD dissertation on land economics, you know, about how prices affect land use. Uh, uh, 
didn't take long to notice that parking is the single biggest use uh, of land in any city. There's more parking than there is uh, the footprint of housing or the footprint of commerce or industry. And it's almost all free. So that there's something wrong there. Hmm. It's very expensive. It is free to cars. And that's going to be a problem. And I think the other thing that maybe it came out of this conversation, what I liked about starting parking, it's so easy. I mean, it's so easy to see how things have been screwed up. But it was, uh, it was sort of a low-status thing to study, the idea of a university professor uh, writing dozens of articles on parking <laughs> was, was ridiculous. But I was, so I was a bottom feeder, you know, and, and there was no competition. If, if, if it was a low-class thing to study, I mean, the, the, the important academic things are national government or international government or... And the state government is a big step down, and the local government is parochial. It was the lowest status thing to think of in the cities, <laughs> and that might be parking or sewage. And <laughs> so I was a, a, a bottom feeder, and, but there's so much food down there in terms of things to discover. And now it's almost a feeding frenzy. And, and you know, people like you were calling up to ask me about this. There are lots of other people you could now talk to who are just as passionate as I am as we've made uh, horrific mistakes in, in our planning. Uh, and we created, we aim for a, a, you know, a free parking utopia and we got a urban nightmare of people complaining about parking and expecting to park free. So I think, uh, I hope you'll keep me posted on, on any progress you make in, in your county. I will for sure. And, and I think one of the things that must be great about having studied this, like you said, it was kind of a, you know, a huge gap that was ripe for somebody to fill. And when you see a city like Fayetteville or other Nashville or others adopt some of these ideas, and you can see so tangibly the difference it makes on a block or a city or a community to see it go from dead to thriving just by shifting some simple policies and, and opening some new doors. It's got to be a pretty gratifying one. So, okay. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me finish with a, a suggestion that's close to you. Have you ever been to Mackinac Island? I have not. But you, but you know what it I is. I know where it is. Yeah. It's, it's uh, right up the lake from us. <laughs> you ought to go because it's the only city and it's a small city that has no automobiles. Uh, you have to get there on a ferry, and after that is walking everywhere or on a, a horse-drawn cart. It's a wonderful place, a very upscale place in the 19th century. People from Chicago and Detroit would go there. But not only does it not have any cars, it has no parking lots. Uh, <laughs> and if any of your listeners have been to Mackinac Island, <laughs> just ask them if it was a nightmare because there was no parking <laughs> <laughs> I will do just that. Well, Donald. Okay. Thank you so much for being a bottom feeder <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and diving into this because your work has helped change my mind as, as a reporter covering these topics and somebody who has served on some of these committees. And I know it has started to touch some of the other folks in, in those positions up here. And I, I will get you updated if we, if we make some change. Sure. Well, you're, you're a journalist and I think that one of the reasons any of these good ideas got spread is through journalism, because journalists know 
how to keep the reader reading, you know, how to tell a story. And the newest book on parking is by a journalist called um, Paved Paradise. Uh, The author is Henry Grabar, G-R-A-B-A-R. And I think you should read this if you haven't yourself and encourage everybody else to read it because he's a very talented journalist and he explains how, how parking affects everything. Well, my friends won't be surprised that that is actually the book that's on my bedside table right now. <laughs> so I, ah. I'm glad you got that plug in for it, too, because it has been a fascinating read for me as well. Well, Donald, thank you again. I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, hopefully we can touch base again in the future, and I can, I can give you good news. Sure. Okay. Thanks for calling. Goodbye. Thanks, Donald. Well, as you might have noticed, I uh, really enjoyed that conversation uh, with Donald Shoup, the professor from UCLA who has done an incredible amount of great work on studying parking and our requirements and kind of the way that it impacts so many of our development policies from making housing more expensive to making transportation more expensive to requiring someone to have a vehicle to punishing those who don't have a vehicle by making them pay for the people who do. And that's not like a car bashing thing. We all need cars. We all use them. I use them. But we can be a lot smarter because for me, one thing that I didn't get a chance to talk to Donald about was the aesthetic cost of all the free parking. And that is, you know, for years driving by what used to be Pomida and Save a Buck in Surgeon Bay and just seeing this huge empty parking lot. And then, and those buildings were empty, but we required them to put parking lots in years and years ago that were so massive. And now we just get to see the weeds grow up through them. And then even so many of our big box stores, we make people put in parking for the absolute peak amount of people that they might get on their busiest day in the history of their business. That's the parking we require. We plan for the busiest day. And that might be one or two days or four or five weekends a year. And we have, we do our, we develop our roads in the same manner. We want to put a turn lane in because a few days a year, somebody turning less slows down traffic, but then for the other 362 days a year, we have to look at this wider swath of concrete and pedestrians have to cross a wider road. And we do these things that we think they're smart, but then most of the time we're dealing with something even aesthetically that we don't like to look at. So I should point out also, we talked a little bit about Sister Bay on that podcast and Sister Bay's parking requirements that are on the books now would require a lot more of the village to be paved. But for a small period of time, Sister Bay got rid of their parking minimums. So a place like Chop, a place like Wild Tomato, don't have any off-street parking for their customers. And the Boathouse has very little parking compared to the number of seats that they have. And that has happened up and down the street. Well, Sister Bay is thriving. Before they did that, Sister Bay was a town that I wrote an article called The Dead Zone. And it was about how so many places were closed, how many businesses were empty, how many were in foreclosure, and how much the community was suffering. And now this is the most thriving community in Door County from a, from a tourism perspective. So you can see the, the proof in the pudding right there in terms of what relaxing those parking, because none of those restaurants that I mentioned would be able to open based on the parking requirements that are in place now. What they didn't do is also add paid parking into this mix. So Sister Bay built a huge parking lot on the waterfront and has a ton of parking spaces back at Waterfront Park, but there's no fee required for those. 
So it's easy to go to Sister Bay and find parking, even though people will complain about finding parking there. There's, there's always parking in the downtown area available. But now everyone circles looking for that parking because they know there's free parking and they have to turn left in most cases to get it if you're coming from the south. So it slows down and congests the village more. If you had what Professor Shoup talks about, if you had that metered parking, you might reduce by 10% the number of people who try to drive into town and make a decision to walk into town or bike into town or find or use the Sister Bay shuttle to get into town rather than pay even just a couple bucks for parking. So there are some things that they could do even better to both bring in some revenue and ease congestion, which is one of the primary complaints that people have in that community right now. And you probably say the same thing about Fish Creek on a few times a year. And at certain hours of the day, maybe you could say that about Bailey's Harbor or Ephraim as well. So I just really like having somebody with the expertise and the depth of knowledge as Mr. Shoup coming on the podcast. And uh, hopefully some people in the community listen to this and doesn't mean that this is the absolute right way to do it, but it's definitely something worth thinking about. And it's always worth questioning whether our status quo is actually the best way to approach our problems and make better communities, which is one of the things I think we should always be striving to do. So Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Thanks for listening to me talk about parking again. And uh, we'll talk about it again sometime soon, I am sure. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.